Is the COVID vaccine the mark of the beast? Well, that's the question sent in by a viewer, viewer uh, to Wisdom 828, where we're dedicated to stamping out spiritual malnutrition one episode at a time. Hi, I'm Bob Gudana. It's been a year filled with uncertainties and turmoil, and it has a lot of people concerned, even, even some people who are fearful about the future. And one of the most interesting aspects this year has been the rise of conspiracy theories. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist myself. I prefer to question every assertion and dig until I'm able to find a reasonable answer, if one can be found. And what I do think about conspiracy theories, however, is that they typically offer simplistic answers to very complex questions bearing on the events of the day. And Christians are no stranger, uh, strangers to conspiracy theories. And the COVID vaccine as the mark of the beast is just the latest version. Now, I'm old enough to remember hearing that social security numbers were thought to be the mark of the beast. And at other times, it was the UPC codes on the products that are sold in grocery stores. Uh, the mark of the beast has been linked to uh, radio frequency identification, credit cards, microchips embedded underneath the skin, the coming cashless society and cryptocurrencies. In the early 1990s, after George H.W. Bush used the term New World Order in a speech, some Christian futurists started to warn about the fear domination of the United Nations and or the European Union as the global bodies planning to take over in the United States. So, how should Christians respond to theories that the COVID vaccination is the mark of the beast? Well, the answer lies in reading carefully the texts from Revelation about the subject. We need the Word of God to inform and shape our thinking about the events that are going to happen prior to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The mark of the beast is mentioned in Revelation 13, verse 8. The context of the chapter deals with a very specific theme that John wants to communicate. He is warning persecuted Christians against compromising their faith by capitulating to the demands of the state to worship the emperor, the Caesar. He wants to encourage them to endure suffering in the light of the victory of Christ over the forces of evil. And these forces were dis uh, decisively defeated at the cross and God's people can expect protection from them now, now that they are in Christ the victor, even if it means death. Well, the context of any scripture matters and it's important if we're to gain wisdom and understanding. The first context to remember about the book of Revelation is that this book is actually a letter written to seven churches in Asia Minor, most likely around the year AD 95. The letter, which is also a prophetic letter by John's own designation, cannot mean what it never meant in his day. In other words, the recipients of John's letter understood everything from chapter four all the way to the end of chapter 22. What John intended to write to them is intended for us as well. And that's why we're not free to bring our contemporary meaning into Revelation. The letter can't mean for us what it never meant to John or his first audience. The encouragement to endure suffering arose out of the political, social, and religious culture of John's day. Rome ruled at the time of John's letter Domitian, in fact, was the emperor who ruled from AD 81 to 96. He was responsible for sporadic persecutions against the church throughout the empire. That persecution had, at its core, 
the question of which gods people worshiped. And this was the age of emperor worship, when the emperors of Rome were declared or declared themselves to be gods and demanded that all citizens and subjects show their allegiance by worshiping the reigning emperor. This worship required that people would enter a temple uh, to the emperor. They would give wine and throw incense on the altar and declare, Caesar is Lord. To take the mark of the beast meant that a person was a worshiper of the emperor as God and would, for that, receive the economic privileges that society gave him, like earning a living, selling a product, buying goods and services, and provision for the family. Not only was emperor worship required, but participation in a trade guild also required worshiping the patron gods of that union. So if, if you were a carpenter, for example, you were expected to join the trade union of carpenters, and part of your dues, so to speak, was to participate in meals and celebrations that included worshiping the patron gods of the guild. But there's more. At the time, Artemis was the great mother goddess of the city of Ephesus the first city that John wrote to in his, in his uh, letter. In Ephesus, the grand temple was built for Artemis. The temple dominated the skyline, but the temple and its worship of the goddess was also the central banking system for the region. Worship Artemis and get a loan for your business. Worship Jesus and your business could be confiscated. And so we can see by all of this, the intertwining and intermingling of the social, economic, commercial, and religious institutions in Asia Minor. These institutions competed with allegiance of Christians who would declare Jesus is Lord. A, a collision of religious allegiances was inevitable. And this collision brought persecution to the church. There is a fascinating document that shows this collision, uh, collision of religious allegiances. It's an exchange of letters between a Roman lawyer and magistrate named Pliny the Younger and the Roman emperor Trajan. The exchange of letters shed some light on the persecution of Christians in John's day. Now let's just say for the sake of the argument that there is a Christian who rose to some level of prominence in his city, but he had a public Yet anonymous accusation brought against him that he was a Christian. Under Roman law at the time, Christianity was illegal everywhere except in the borders of Israel because Christianity was still considered a sect of Judaism. The public but anonymous accusation was enough to bring this prominent Christian to the attention of state authorities and the authorities were obligated to invest investigate. Pliny, the lawyer, wasn't sure what to do, and he wrote to Trajan asking for legal precedence of how to handle these accusations and punishment if the accused is found guilty of being a Christian. Pliny wanted to know if he did the right thing by dropping charges against an accused man who, was, who, who, who denied his allegiance to Christ. He wrote this, quote, those who denied that they were or ever had been Christian who repeated after me an invocation to the gods and offered adoration with wine and frankincense to your image, which I ordered to be brought for that purpose, and who finally cursed Christ, none of which acts, it is said, those who are really Christians can be forced into performing, I thought it proper to discharge the accused. They all worshiped the statue, your statue, and the images of the gods and cursed Christ. Well, Trajan answered by confirming, uh, confirming Pliny's uh, procedure and the acquittal. When the party denies himself, wrote Trajan, to be a Christian 
and shall give proof that he is not, that is by adoring our gods with wine and frankincense. He shall be pardoned on the ground of repentance, even though he may have formerly incurred suspicion. Well, this is the historic context of the mark of the beast. A Christian would be marked by the public action of worshiping the emperor in the presence of state authorities, showing that he or she is loyal, consistent, and wholeheartedly committed to the emperor as Lord. That's the little L. So what does John then mean by the mark of the beast being placed on the forehead or on the hand? Well, John is using um, irony as a literary device here that satirizes the beast's copycat imitation of the true God. John refers to God's name being written on the foreheads of his people in Revelation 3, 14, and 22 to remind us that Christians are sealed and secure in God's providential care. But this idea even has deeper roots into the Old Testament, especially in Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Ezekiel. For example, in Deuteronomy, God obligates parents to teach his word diligently to the children and to talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them, that is God's word, as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now the idea here is to make sure that God's word shapes the mind and the heart of the children and shows evidence in the conduct of that child. But over time, this command gave rise to the unusual practice of wearing phylacteries by the Pharisees. These were little tiny leather boxes that were worn on the forehead or strapped to the arm containing a portion of scripture. But Jesus said wearing these missed the whole point of his teaching. He wants the believer to hide God's word in his or her heart and live out the reality of that life. It's not about show, it's about substance. So John's warning against taking the mark of the beast and all that it entails is not necessarily a visible tattoo or a mark on the forehead or the hand, but at its heart, it is the compromising of one's faith in Christ by the public act of denying the Lord Jesus and worshiping a false God in an effort to avoid suffering and persecution and enjoy the privileges of that society. When a Christian forsakes Jesus and embraces an alien God in order to get or maintain privileges in a culture where anti-Christian forces hold sway, then this person belongs wholeheartedly to the false gods of this world and its empire. Now John's purpose for writing to those churches and to your church and to my church is that no matter how much pressure is brought against us, the church must stand fast against the infiltration of false teachers who encourage us to compromise our faith, even just a little bit, or to pretend that we can deceive ourselves by denying Christ with our lips, but secretly believing with, about him in our hearts. John wants to jolt us out of any complacency and be aware of what's at stake. Now that's the message in John's day, and it is still today's message. Pressures to compromise our faith in Christ might come in small ways now, but if we cave to them now, when the pressures really mount and we're asked to deny Christ and prove it by worshiping the gods of this age, will the church stand faithful? Although we Christians aren't being jailed for practicing our faith, there is increasing scrutiny of the Christian faith and its perceived intolerance. 
As a result, many Christians are fearful about offending others or worrying about how they may be perceived if they're vocal about faith. Yet Jesus was not afraid to offend others. A reading of the gospel shows that many times Jesus made people angry and hostile over the things he said, like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, or no one comes to the Father except by me. And yet he always showed love, even towards those who rejected him. Jesus was tried, convicted, and killed for his teachings and his beliefs. Like the old saying goes, if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Well, that's something to think about. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining me. And thanks to Steve Dion for his work uh, to help make Wisdom 828. Fulfill this mission to stamp out spiritual malnutrition one episode at a time. You be a good cheer.